What are you two talking about? Oh, nothing. Just the end of the world. Welcome, everybody, to Who Pods the Watchmen. I'm Grant. I'm Clay. And I think I get a little bit more comfortable here. Yeah. We are doing a special live episode dedicated. One might think, hey, wait, what are we doing here, right? Uh-huh. The show's over. Off season. Yeah, off season. If there is a second season, cross fingers. But we wanted to do some character studies, yeah. some character breakdowns, little minis, mini episodes for fun. And what better place to start then with. Angela Abar, Sister Knight. Absolutely. Played by Regina King. So that's pretty much what we're going to do. We have any structure here? No. I mean, <laughs> I feel like we ought to. Yeah. And you listen to other shows like um, like the Ringer shows that will do like character breakdowns. Mm-hmm. And um, let's just copy their structure. Yeah. Maybe we should that? just maybe do a Star Wars Han Solo one. Is that uh, what we should do? That was last week. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I think this is a good place to start. And I think it would be offensive to the character, you know, the fictional character, if you can offend a fictional person. Um, to start with anybody else. She is the central figure, and I think what drives the whole show. Um, I mean, would you disagree with me there? I would not. I would absolutely agree. Yeah. Whoa. Angela Abar. I know I can change the uh, images here. Holy smokes. And if you guys are listening to this podcast after we are doing our live show, uh, I, I think we anticipated this would probably be like a 20, maybe 30-minute little mini. Yeah. But uh, if you're listening... Later, you know exactly how long this ended up being. This is a little baby podcast that somebody could just fish out of a lake later. Yeah. And then maybe grow into whatever they want it to be. What what an adorable way to phrase it. Yeah. So, yeah, we're going to go ahead and start with, of course, our lead hero, our lead protagonist, Angela Abar. And in thinking about her, okay, there's a couple different ways to look at the narrative arc. Like, we could start from the our first introduction to her in the first episode, mm-hmm. which is her cracking some eggs in school and teaching kids how to bake because she's operating under her uh, her uh, her fake alter ego mm-hmm. of Angela Abar Baker. Extraordinaire. Uh, Baker Extraordinaire, who, who yeah. owns a bake shop. Yeah. Milk and, Milk and Hanoi. Yeah. So we could start there, and we could look at her journey – over the course of what was it about like two or three weeks to the big apocalypse of of icy squid rain that occurs right in Tulsa, and we could look at right at, up to the point where she cracks the egg, or we could do like a, or we could look at it from like what's her full arc from when she was a kid looking into her legacy and her past. Well, just to catch everybody up, obviously people are familiar with the show. Um, if you're not familiar with the show, this is probably not the best place to start listening. Uh, I would recommend we just throw out a quick spoiler warning here, both for the T-shirt you're wearing. If anybody's watching on video, you've got a sweet big alien shirt. Um, so spoiler for that. And also, yeah, I mean, obviously start back. We broke down the individual comic books months ago in anticipation of the show, and then we did weekly recaps, um, kind of hot takes for each show. So if you're listening here, I assume you are deep into the back nine with us, and you're willing to, uh, and you're hopefully you're willing to listen to these kind of things go into. More detail on characters while we're still awaiting uh, news on a second season. Um, But in short, right, this is skipping over a lot of themes and everything, but just factually, she was born or at least moved to Vietnam when she was a girl. 
Mm. Her, her mom and dad met. Her dad was serving um, in the American occupation of Vietnam, which we learn in the Watchmen universe, Vietnam was the 51st state of the United States. Right. Right. It got annexed at some point. Her parents were unfortunately blown to smithereens uh, when she was 10 years old by a terrorist or freedom fighter, however you want to say it. And she was actually going to end up living with her grandmother, who discovered her in Vietnam, a, a while later. But unfortunately, another twisted turn of fate, uh, or I guess just a twist of fate, a twisted turn, an unfortunate turn again for her. Twisted. You know, this is kind of lemony snicket territory here. <laughs> but she, uh, her grandma dies, I guess, has a heart attack right when they're about to get in the cab and um, go back to the United States, go to Tulsa, because that's where she has some family. So we assume she grows up in Vietnam, becomes a cop. She was inspired by some police officers while she was living in a girl's school. And becomes a cop, meets John, Dr. Manhattan, who decides to have a regular life with her. Um, they go to Tulsa to do that, even though they only have maybe 10 years together because, of course, he lives at all times. And all times are – any time is every time, right, mm-hmm. with this guy. And he basically promises, promises her we can have 10 good years together. And that's a sweet photo, by the way, if anybody's yeah, yeah. listening. A little Christmas photo. It's the Christmas photo, yeah. Um, and – they kind of make the deal. Let's have 10 good years together, and that's going to be a good life for us. I mean, that's more than a lot of people get. They have a family. They end up with three kids, three adopted kids. They do. They move to Tulsa. Product of tragedy. She lost her partner. Again. Doyle. Lemony, and... Lemony Snicket all over this. Right. <laughs> and um, and then you want to take over here when they're in Tulsa? Well, yeah. I mean, w- once in Tulsa, she has this 10-year span of, of life where she's operating initially in the public as a police officer in Tulsa. Until the White Knight tragedy in nineteen or twenty sixteen, I believe December twenty fourth, twenty sixteen, or at the strike of midnight, um, the there was an attack on a bunch of police by the Seventh Cavalry, and this results in a lot of uh, of the police having to mandatorily um, be incognito they have to hide their identity mm-hmm. and some it's not really clear to me and maybe you have a better sense of this um why some elect to take it a step further and don a more more of a persona than just the yellow mask and i don't know if it's beat cops only get yellow and if you become full-fledged detective you get to go wild with it or if it's a matter of like i don't know like and then if and then if you're if you're the admin cop you get the uh, the panda head right right like, right because I'm like, what level was was Panda? But he still got to wear yeah that kind of costume too. Yeah, she's not she's not just uh, she. I don't think she's just on the beat. But she takes on a persona of Sister Knight, and this is really relevant to her legacy. Although she's unaware of her legacy at this point, and um, once once she's been operating under this uh, alternate superhero identity it, as a police detective, um, she ends up. Things begin to get a little bit more intense with the assassination of her her mentor, the lead chief of police, Don Johnson, mm-hmm. Judd Crawford. Mm-hmm. Who was one of her best buddies. Her best buddy. Yeah. At least she thought. Yeah. And uh, it turns out, no, he was not her best buddy. Yeah. He was head of, or he was highly ranked in the 7th Cavalry KKK analog in this show. And that set off a series of events where she starts learning about her past. She reconnects with uh, Will Reeves, or connects for the first time, I guess, with Will Reeves, uh-huh. her grandfather, who has his own s- s- uh, superhero, superhero origin. Yeah, kind of. And 
Which and... ties back to the comic books, of course. And he was one of the original, I guess, what, what was it called? The Minutemen. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, of course, while trying to investigate the death of her police chief, she did, finds out that, okay, he's the he's her grandfather. She has these ties to the superhero past. She's, of course, a superhero on her own account. She's married to the greatest superhero of all time, or at least the individual with the greatest potential to be a superhero. And then things get pretty watchmany. I guess we can just kind of leave it at that. We don't need to necessarily go over episodes eight and nine, but that kind of gives you an idea of who she is. Somebody right. born out of tragedy and maybe trying to cobble together a family and an identity at the same time. And a lot of this, I think it's a lot of really familiar superhero tropes. You mm-hmm. have the orphaned hero who has to make it on their own. They they are really scrappy and individualistic. They have a thirst for justice. And whether or not they work alongside law enforcement or um, counter to law enforcement, they they want they have that desire for for vindication. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hers is a really interesting character study. It, yeah. Like it's it's so intrinsically tied into legacy and and lineage, but there also is a lot of um, power in the contrast that comes between who she stakes out her identity as um, and who her grandfather Hooded Justice is. And their two stories are so intertwined that I feel it's it's hard to talk about the character arc of her without also bringing in Will Reeves' Hooded Justice and talking about, like, what he ended up going through. Exactly. Yeah, and, I mean, it's funny that the parallels are are, are just there. When we look at, you know, when I kind of look at a character, we know so much more than she knows, right? I mean, of course, she knows things we don't know. Like, we didn't know that she knew she was married to John or anything like that, right? right? But at the same time, it's easy to look back and just think everything Everybody knew everything at the same time. and But no, we actually had real developments here. So when I look back to her, like let's say a year or two before the show even started, she's living in Tulsa. What is she committed to? We know two of the things she's committed to are her family mm-hmm. and kind of justice. Whether it's just, I mean, it's being a police officer, but one that has a secret identity, right? Well, her job, right? It's not like, it's not just justice. Like she's right. dedicated to her job it, to such an intensity that... She has a secret hideout. She decks right. out her car. She is in heavily invested in the costume aspect of hiding who she is, but not not simply just putting a panda head over your panda costume head over your head, but like fully into it, spray painting her eyes Blade Runner style and mm-hmm. just like really embracing what it means to be a costumed vigilante. And why do you think she I mean, there's obviously the tropes that, that people that characters give in the show, but why do you think she did go those to those links? Was it just because she was afraid of anyone, someone hurting her family, similar to what happened in 2016, or did she gain some kind of power? Not real power, but you know. Right. I I think that the show is telling us one aspect of it, where they're trying to say this idea that like, if you wear a mask, you're hiding something. Mm-hmm. You're hiding your identity, of course, obvious. On um, but but beyond that, you're hiding anger that has has built up in you. You're hiding fear, um, and I think that, sure, to a certain extent, if you go into like wanting to analyze someone, that is true, and we'll do that as well. But I gotta say, I think there's just something a little nerdy about her, right? Yeah, like that she she looks to these Minutemen of the past, of these other costumed vigilantes, 
and there's something appealing in in that and i mean she already had the appeal of of wanting to be like other law enforcement Mm -hmm. to the extent that she followed in the path of uh her childhood hero who was that that uh detective when she was a a kid who like gave her a badge and had her partner go kill the person who killed her folks within earshot within earshot within earshot yeah so she idolizes power and she idolizes the uniform but we also saw that her other person that she identified with and was uh, the sister knight on the mm-hmm. the VHS that the she black exploitation film. Yeah, yeah, and that that of course is heavily tied to this idea that like how important it is uh, representation. Representation mm-hmm. matters. Mm-hmm. You see yourself in your heroes, and if someone looks like you, all the more that you can see yourself in them and want to aspire to be like them. Hashtag I'm with her. I'm with her, but. But uh, at the same time, there's like she's she's certainly doing an homage mm-hmm. to Sister Knight, but how how much that parallels and and contrasts Hooded Justice with her doing black over her eyes, him doing white over his eyes, him trying to mislead people into thinking he was a, a white guy, um, her trying to mislead people into thinking that. Or just not knowing, like being like completely shadowed and right. and mysterious in that regard, right. but also like having like religious iconography mm-hmm. that is like this weird juxtaposition with brutal justice. Right. I mean, of course, a lot of that iconography came from the fact that that was the person the... on the cover of the VHS, right? Right. But it does work thematically here too. Um, I think there's also this idea of, you know, she saw she saw John compartmentalized between the guy we know, you know, and then Dr. Manhattan. Right. They're literally different colors as well, you know. And she, I think, thinks maybe there's something okay with and necessary to compartmentalize as well just for her own family's safety. When she's day-to-day with the family, she's just a baker, right? And when she goes out and does her own thing, there is maybe a certain power of – because we did see it seemed almost like there was that one – there was that one snippet – I think it was pretty early on in the show where you saw her putting on the gloves and doing the whole thing, right? And there was something um, not religious about it, but just going through the motions like that is almost as if, you know, it's like... It's it, ritualistic. It's ritualistic. And there's that there's that thing where it's like, you know, if you if you have a job interview on the phone, don't just do the interview like in your mesh shorts and tank top, you know, sitting on the couch, slouched over, you know, with a bowl of cereal on your stomach. Dress up so you feel like you're projecting that confidence. Dress for the job you want, not for the job you have. <laughs> right? So maybe it's something like that too, where she feels like, okay, this this video maybe I watched when I was a kid, I was able to sneak in like whenever the, the sisters at the convent or whatever were asleep, you know, or whatever family home she was in, she wants to dress like a badass because it makes her feel like a badass. That's okay too. I think that there's there's something kind of fascinating in this idea that she is a victim mm-hmm. in a way, or her you know, her past, her lineage is a victim of institutionalized power structures. And yet she also gravitates toward that because she wants to have a piece of that power and be able to use it. But she also has some pretty negative qualities Mm -hmm. in that she's abusive of it. Mm -hmm. Like she's uh, in the police force and she's just beating people that they've arrested without cause I just like physical violence yeah and yeah. like how she like 
meets out her anger on on other people is it, it's it's fascinating in how that seems to come into conflict with a lot of this idea of of both the examination of um, the past of for her grandfather what he went through mm-hmm. but also this idea of living in in Vietnam which was imperialist occupied and right. and force annexation of, of a people that didn't want that like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's it, it seems like there's this this struggle and tension that I feel there could have been a lot more examination in this show into yeah. that aspect. Yeah, yeah. and I'm, I'm glad they didn't push it too far, though, because this is the kind of thing that does make her a human rather than just an easy trope like a Batman character or something, right? Like in his cave and, you know, hiding away with the with the pain of his parents. A lot of what she is is doing when you say meeting out the, the anger, that is kind of reflected a little bit in the conversation she had with, um, what's her kid's name? Topher? Yeah, when she's like, you know, a lot of people tell themselves lies to lies to make the world a little bit better. I'm paraphrasing, right? Right. But you and I, we don't do that. We know that things are black or white and the world is, is pretty shitty, you know? And she is kind of dealing with people like that. Speaking of Han Solo, she would shoot first. Yeah. She would shoot first, you know? I mean, she just has to survive. And she's seen people around her die. And she's a survivor for sure. And so and that's the thing. We talk about the fact that she could self-identify as a victim, surely, from, from what she's gone through. What, her, but what, her parents being blown up in right, front of her? and her and... grandmother and everything. But she never does that. She never does that. And that's, that's just incredible strength of character, mm. you know? Um, and uh, so just a really fascinating character study. Anyway. She also doesn't tend to show much... Uh, in terms of, of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. A, a few times, I, I think that's what makes it so effective when she does. Like when when she does get the the, the matrix download of, of her her father grandfather's past, it is so heavy that she can't help but be emotionally charged by that. But it seems like she sees, a lot of of pain and tragedy and has like this steely reserve against mm-hmm. a lot of that otherwise. So um yeah, it's, it's another it's another way that I think a lot of superheroes bury their pain, they don't address right. these things. They they hide it in and bring their fists of justice to <laughs> to the bad guy. Yeah, and 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 I think the one of the most impressive things about her is that she never um she never takes a day off. Even when she does deal with with all those memories and emotions from her grandfather, even when it seem, does seem like you know not seem like when it, when her parents do die, when she does deal with with her her grandmother dying, etc., she's always kind of moving forward. You know, I mean, of course, we don't see those times right after. I'm surely she's going to mourn like anybody else, right? But she's the person who, when we look at, for instance, the terrorist attack, like with the. Uh, the person wearing the the, the vest or whatever, mm. right? You know, at, at the funeral, right? She's the one running forward. You know, everybody else is scared, running back. She's running forward. She's the one who um, is going to save to to save everybody at the whether it was a mall or a warehouse or whatever else. She's she's very much like Wade doing that, just running in with a gun. And I'm kind of thinking, man, why doesn't he hold back? She runs outside of her house whenever people are all these militias are out there with just a couple weapons, and she's like in a Lululemon tracksuit. And just goes and kicks ass. She's somebody who is not afraid to go out there. She's going to also protect a walking god, essentially. Right. And it's it's fascinating what the show is able to achieve in that relationship right there. Because anyone who's familiar with Watchmen prior to um, this show is familiar with how un- unequally powerful 
Dr. Manhattan is. Right. That he is, he's like Superman, which is why they had a big crossover event where Dr. Manhattan actually squares off with Superman. Mm-hmm. But to Wasn't to that have, a gem? To have him, so what? Wasn't that a gem? <laughs> I didn't read it. A joy. Uh, so to, to have her be in a relationship with him, but hold on to that secret element of it, I think it it allows us, the audience, to have to view them through a lens where we see her as the strong and capable caretaker. Well, not not. I mean, he's caretaking the kids, right? He's but making waffles. But yeah, but she's the one who's the the strong dominant. Mm-hmm. Force who's working the multiple jobs and and like making everything kind of work right. in the household. She's a driving force. Yeah, and so when we get the reveal that he's a god, she doesn't suddenly become his subordinate. She's in a way his equal. She's she, his protector. Exactly. That makes her even more like revered. I think. Yeah, and he was able. And if we look at you know speaking of, of the the comic books, the the comics weren't ever really. They'd never featured what you would consider maybe a healthy relationship, right? Right. Of co-equal parties working together. I mean, really, Dr. Manhattan was just, he would kind of have a flavor of the week or month and wouldn't really pay that much attention to him and then would cast him aside to do whatever he had to do, right? I mean, I guess that's self-discovery. I feel like he was portrayed as a romantic to a degree, but also so emotionally disconnected that how can one even term him a romantic? He liked the idea and wanted that in his back pocket, but right. he didn't want to do the investment. In and, it. of course, that's why he had to do what he did with the secret identity and everything. Right. Right? So that he could try to have a normal life with someone um, with whom, I guess, somebody he thought it would be worth it with. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I'm curious. I was thinking just stepping outside of the story a little bit. Do you know of anybody else maybe they were considering for the part? Have you thought about, like, alternate characters, anything like that? It's just kind of interesting to think, could somebody else have done it? Because I know we love her so much from previous work. Right. No, she was immediately considered before, like, at the initial conception of this show. Okay. Um, when Lindelof was was writing out his rough outline, he already had her in mind and started mapping this character before he mapped a lot of the other character beats, which is one of the interesting trivia bits that they said like he reached out to her said hey i have this thing i want to do are you interested i want to gear it around you being what are you doing what are you doing next wednesday yeah <laughs> yeah and she was like yeah yeah <laughs> oh fuck yeah. yeah 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 he's like you know the last the last uh the last show we did i put you in rural texas and now we're gonna go to oklahoma <laughs> not really the la new york uh you know bi-coastal thing what a what a gem. Uh, so she also, we, we touched on it a little bit, but she dons the persona of Sister Knight, which is a reference to the the, the nun with the motherfucking gun. Mm. And it's a VHS that she loved. But what's also interesting in the backstory of, of the creation of the show is that Sister Knight is an analog for Brother Knight, which was the original name Alan Moore came up with when he was developing the hooded justice character who ultimately becomes her grandfather Mm -hmm. in the story so sister knight was definitely derived from brother knight which is in the back notes of that character before he shifted and became hooded justice yeah and how clever once again it was to take what one would assume based on how alan moore decided to portray him um hooded justice uh this white guy who might have been a german 
a circus wrestler or whatever mm-hmm. um, who was the one of the first costume vigilantes and and turn that on its ear and make it no actually it was the first black superhero who had to hide his identity because of the circumstances under which he became a superhero mm-hmm. so cleverly written so perfectly executed um, it gave so much more depth of meaning to the noose around the neck the costume that he wears um, and like tracing the backstory of what his origins were and realizing what the public had an understanding of was the reverse of what was actually true with mm-hmm. him escaping from like the grocery store instead of bursting through the window and inside to stop a, a scene, he was trying to escape them with shotguns and so, so cool. Right. And I mean, how wild, you know, how wild is it to think, Okay, I'm dealing with the subject matter, obviously, is Watchmen. This is some of the most beloved material that's out there. A lot of people consider it the finest comic book written, right? Mm. And so you've got these characters. You've got decades of what people think about these characters. And then you think, I need to have a, have a character that's not only equal, right, up to, the, up to snuff with the others, but someone I can insert into that story that make it work 30, 35, whatever years later. And I need it to be kind of seamless, and I need it to be memorable, and I need it to work with all the other characters, yet still not be too, uh, not deal with it too reverently because I need to kind of craft, craft my own story. And he actually did it. Yeah. I mean, and her acting did it. It's just, it act, the fact that it actually worked, and we can talk about it and not really complain too much. I mean, when we complain, it's, we're not complaining. We're breaking down her story and saying she's not a perfect hero. She's very human, which is even um, all the more reason to like it. It's just insane that he, he made it work, you know? And I think he made it work with a lot of characters, but especially her. Uh, something I wanted to talk about yeah. regarding her is the idea of motherhood mm-hmm. and how that kind of plays a role in her life. She, um, I, I think at one point in episode eight, I want to say uh, the one with um, her meet cute with Dr. Manhattan at yeah. the bar. I think there was something about him saying, like, you've always wanted to have kids or that having a, having kids was something that you secretly desired but you were terrified of because of losing your parents and being an orphan or whatever. Something to that effect, right? Um, so we're presented with her having, to some extent, that kind of interest, that yearning for that, mm-hmm. but kind of shying away from actually embracing that and, and making that as like a, a, a biological choice. Right. But then when the opportunity i guess if i would say opportunity is presented to her you mean she meets a guy at a bar that's the opportunity (laughs) no because who knows what kind of kids they would have uh but the opportunity as far as um, a tragedy strikes and she can not only take on a larger family by adopting these three kids but do it as a a heroic gesture as well i feel like that also fits within her mindset of of wanting to have that family but needing it to have higher purpose than which right not to demean well <laughs> what motherhood is yeah simply but i, I right. feel like it, it takes it to another level that she did this also as this heroic gesture because that fits her character and i think she's somebody who knows based on what she suffered losing her family that you know family is where you find it Right. right. I mean, you don't have to have this classic nuclear family story where boy meets girl, they have kids, they, you know, 
um, have a house, white picket fence, etc. Although that's funny because that's kind of what she ends up with ultimately. Right. But uh, and she just ends up having militiamen, you know, machine gun down that picket fence. But she's somebody who has found family and has made it work against all odds. And again, while she could identify and self-identify as as a victim, no, she's a survivor. But she's not really a survivor like we would think. Um, looking class sees himself. He sees himself as literally someone who is a survivor and has to have a bunker to continue surviving. She's not only a survivor know, and he does kind of lean on that victim for mentality. Sure. She's a because you know sur- being a survivor is not necessarily thriving, right? It's just holding on. Right. She's not only just holding on, she's actually making things work. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, she's doing she's jumping in the carpool lane, she's going to soccer practice. She has a fake bakery, you know? I mean, that's the dr- that's the American dream having a fake bakery. <laughs> So it's just really wild that she kind of makes it all work. And huh, is there a little maybe Bay Area phrase here? Hashtag lean in. <laughs> She's leaning in. I'm just kidding. That's awful. But, but she uh, is taking on multiple hats. And there, there is part of me that feels there's almost this um, misogynist uh, inequality. And she can't simply just be a badass superhero. Mm-hmm. She also has to be a mother and also has she has because she's a female she has to wear multiple hats right like there's so many male superheroes and they never have kids right (laughs) like it's it's hard to name all the superheroes who have kids versus the ones who don't yeah because i think it's a lot easier as a story device to not have that risk factor that you're leaning on all the time of Mm -hmm. of your kids at risk and so in part, I was like, oh, okay, I guess they feel they have to have that. But then when you get kind of, you peel across, peel back the layers and realize why she ended up becoming a mother and yeah. it was another heroic gesture. I'm like, okay, yeah, that, she actually, that all fits and within she, the And she also has a husband who is making breakfast, who is putting the kids to sleep. And right. it's just this kind of real, this like this fair look at a modern family, you know, and, he, and they don't make a big deal out of it. It's, it's just, a switch of the, the caretaker. Yeah, exactly. As a, as a stay-at-home dad, oh. I identify my goodness, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Or so. So whenever your kids go to sleep, you usually like lie on the couch and read Hemingway and Chinua Chibe and stuff like that. All the classics. Watchmen. Yeah. <laughs> I watch Watchmen. Right. And then I rewatch Watchmen. Yeah. And then I maybe get on Reddit and just you know go on the off. We watch some Office again. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk about uh, her wearing a mask as well. Okay. Because we start off, and this is the other part of her character arc that she starts off wearing this mask as we've been introduced to her. And this was not, the mask wasn't necessarily um, her initial choice. It was a product of, if you want to continue in the force, you have to hide your identity. Right. So the motivation came from elsewhere for her having to hide her identity, but her embracing of that and making it something that she could wield as as an extra layer of force in um, enacting her justice, I think I think it's interesting that they wanted to kind of examine what it means to wear the mask, and to a degree, it's this idea that anonymity allows a certain element of power, mm-hmm. and yet it also, as Lori Blake says, hides trauma it's it's there there to hide particular trauma of the past yeah and right. while she tried to deny this to a certain extent i think like no ultimately it it still rang true that angela was hiding a degree of trauma and 
when we get to the scene where she's outed, essentially, as well, after she takes the pills. Well, it's, it's not so much that she was outed, but she takes the p- nostalgia pills. And she comes to an understanding of her father, her grandfather, and what he went through and why he chose to wear the mask and then doesn't. You never see her wearing the mask anymore after that point. Mm-hmm. She's kind of a- abandoned this idea. Yeah, and she maybe you know, I don't know if she ever necessarily needed to have the mask to operate. Obviously, she was a police officer before that. It might have just been circumstantial that she did not go back to the costume after that. I think, you know, there there was a highly compressed time frame with episodes 8 and 9, right? right. I mean, she was she's waking up seeing an elephant next door and shit's going down, right? Mm-hmm. Um so I don't know if she necessarily but you but you're completely right. I mean, that's when she thought I need to get home. Because it's more important for me to get home and crack my husband's head open, right, <laughs> uh, than put on my mask and do it myself. I just can't do it anymore. Right. You know, but I, th- I do think it's interesting thinking about that, you know, anonymity does allow you to operate freely. And then if you do that in a powerful manner, you know, anonymity breeds freedom, which, which could breed power over others. But at the same time, when you are operating that way and you have so much intensity and passion doing your... Um, doing whatever you're doing behind the mask, that of course you're not examining your own life and the trauma behind it. You know, I wonder, do you see elements of her really suffering and maybe hiding from that? I, I think, I, I don't really see that. Um, I don't see her ever going after somebody because her parents were killed or anything like that. I think she's a pretty logical individual. She definitely is very pragmatic mm-hmm. in a lot of her approach to things, but... And, and she's not operating off of, off of an emotional anger, I guess, like right. an, an outward one. But right. I think there is something that was ingrained in her. There's this um, indoctrination of this idea that um, you have to go out and you have to seek within the system what level of power you can, and you need to hold on to that because that will help you to be a survivor. Absolutely, the, the people in power continue to hold the power. Absolutely. So she seeks out being a police officer, then rising through the ranks, becoming a detective, aligns herself with a very powerful man that she finds attractive. Um, but I, I don't think that that aspect necessarily defined her so much as it, it fit within, like, oh, she would ultimately It's just this driving force. Guy. It's just kind of this instinctive thing, mm-hmm. you know, right? In order to survive, in order to have some comfort or protection, I need to do this, right? right? Because if I don't, then somebody can take advantage of me and hurt me. But speaking of that practicality of her, um, that also is reflected in her loss of Cal. Right. Like, she knows she has a 10-year time limit. Yeah. The time has come up. He already warned her of this. Yeah. She dove into this relationship accepting that. And I think that you don't see as powerful, like, of an emotional breakdown or anything because she's she's pragmatic. She's rational about it. She knows this is painful but I have too many other things that are more important right now that are pressing. Yeah. I don't really need to, to focus on that. I need to figure out what the next step is and keep, and she just, keep, she's very driven in that direction. Right. And she's driven, you know, thinking about protecting her family and protecting those around her. I mean, she's thinking right then, likely, where are my kids? Are my kids safe? I need to bring you out. And so we can kind of do our thing. And then, like you said, though, this is the most powerful guy in in the universe as far as we know right right and she still runs out because she knows that he's maybe going to his own his own demise whether it's them him they're you know they're sucking him into this like ghostbusters gun or whatever right <laughs> this right. luigi's mansion type thing i don't know but she runs out there with a tracksuit with a couple of guns 
you know, hellfire and brimstone. And it's just because that's who she is. Right. And it's not about exercising power. It's just like, damn it. I love you. I'm not going to see you go out like that. You know, like you're my guy. We're doing this. Well, as we move toward the end of, of her story in season one, her arc, I guess, um, the the last scene is what I think I'm kind of most interested by. I, I feel like we kind of addressed in a roundabout way, not directly, yeah. um, the scene with her and her grandfather in the theater and the idea of what the power and the mask represent. Um, I, I feel like we've been kind of circling around talking about that. I mean, we can talk about that a little bit more directly if you'd like. But otherwise, I wanted to just jump to talking yeah. about the egg because the egg is this possibility, this potential for more power. But she's also aware, being in a relationship, then eventually married for 10 years to John Osterman, what that egg also represented. Mm-hmm. The, the danger of that much power, how it makes you both a target and it also makes you distant mm-hmm. from humanity humanity it makes you untethered in time and and what impact does that have when you when she i mean i feel like she is in a way so human right and so so identifiable in that regard right that her also like becoming potentially becoming him what would that mean for someone like her i think john osterman in a way, was just this kind of bumbling geek who didn't, who's al- already seemed a bit aimless by the time he had the egg. Absolutely. Or b- by the time he got um, disapparated, whatever, mm-hmm. he got dissolved mm-hmm. and then re- reconstituted. But for her, she already has such an established life. She has three kids that are dependent upon her, a, a great grand or a grandfather living in the house with her. She has two lives she's living as a baker and a detective. He would, um, wait, wait, wait. He was just going to stay for a day or two. Maybe. You think he's going to extend his welcome? Yeah, of course. This uh, is I would hope so. Right? Yep, exactly. Living there. Yeah. So, like, what does it say? What do you think about the idea that she decided to take that egg? She didn't toss it away. Mm-hmm. She she looked at that, knowing the ramifications of what it could be, ate it up, and decided to take a step out of the water. Mm-hmm. What do you think? What do I think happened? What do I think is that? What does, what does that say about her that she ate the egg? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, she had a busy night. She needed a little protein, eight grams. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm worried about her salmonella. I'm worried about her CICO, a little calorie in, calorie out. Um, no, but, you know, she's not – it's kind of like that thing about the person who should be in power is the person who doesn't want it. Right. And I don't think that this is her saying, gimme, right? I think it's just more saying, you know, John said this would be important. That's the love of my life. That's who I, I trusted my life with. He trusted his life with me. If this there's might a possibility be... that he left it, he left it for me because he knows yeah. better. And this might just be my path, right? I mean, there's I don't like I don't really love the idea of fate. Um, and I think that's too easy. But if there is something where she's kind of th- and maybe that also is her connection to him still. He's gone, but she did have 10 great years with him, right? right? And if that's just a little bit of a nostalgic thing or just this kind of connection, this tether to him. Why not go for it and see what's gonna go? What's gonna happen? I mean, if he wanted to warn her, off away from it, if it was so awful that he needed to warn her, he would have done so. Right. But he never did that. He kind of just hinted and intimated, you know, that hey, whatever. So I, I do think that um, it's not that it's like a hungry power grab. I don't think it's something she sh- needed to shy away from. I just think it was maybe just a continuation of her journey. And I would hope that season two. I don't think it would. But if there was a season two, I don't think it would just show her becoming some power mad. Vite, 
or Lady True or something like right. that, right? I mean, that would just be too cheap. Well, that's what that's my final two questions I had for okay. you. Okay. Yeah. Um, what would you envision as a story if the egg gives her powers, and what do you envision the story if the egg doesn't give her powers? Would you rather have flight or invisibility? <laughs> flight. If you say invisibility, you're a pervert. <laughs> I think that's always the rule. That's the rule. I'm, so I'm like, I'm, I'll take flight, except for so, I feel I'm going to be too lazy to ever want to actually fly anywhere. Yeah. Like, how much energy does it take well, to fly? Well, you would be checking the weather. Yeah. You right? know? Be like, oh, I don't really want to have to put a jacket on today. Yeah, this, exactly. Is I, it what rain? am I going to do with because, my you know, jacket when I get to the other place? If you're going fast, raindrops can actually hurt. So, ugh, no, <laughs> Um, You know, the question was, what what powers would she get if she... No, no, no. Like, where do you see her storyline oh, going? Oh, sorry. I was thinking if... about powers. Yeah, right. Like, what would you see her storyline going, where it would go, um, if the egg gives her powers? And where would it go if it doesn't give her powers? Man, either way, I would love a return to... I don't know about the story, but I would love to see some more backstory in Vietnam. You know, right. and of course, sorry, that's a shitty answer because I'm changing the question. But I guess I just don't know. And my fear is that it would go to something like I just talked about where... Maybe she would become a bad person or power power mad, whatever. I don't think that would happen, but if it did, that would be pretty cheap, right? Mm. Um, uh, but it could be interesting to kind of see more of this dumb joke I made, the hashtag lean in. How much could she handle? How much could she do? And then also this idea with, with great power, I mean, of course, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Right. If you do have ultimate power, what's the responsibility? Because you still have people around you you need to take care of. Cal's not making the, making the waffles anymore. She has to take care of her family. So... Can she just go and save the world for three or four hours and call it quits? Well, I mean, I think Will can make boiled eggs for the kids. Yeah. Right? So they're going to be okay. That's true. He, yeah, he can do that. But, yeah, if if she ends up with powers, I think they have no choice but to pursue a storyline where she tries to enact greater change with that. Right. She She does take the risk that John doesn't, and she has to fight against maybe what she might see in the future, in the timelines, as inevitability. Right. Like, if she's already seeing the course of her future and that just drives her to inaction, like, John t- John saw his future. Yeah. And he knew that he would go and intercede in the events of Vietnam, right? Mm-hmm. For better or worse. He knew that that was his path, and he still drove toward that and did it. So... He was such an apathetic um, figure, though, and she's shown at least the exact opposite of that, I think, in season one. So it will be different, I think. I would love to see this kind of um, duality of conscience for her, this, mm-hmm. this struggle between this, this fatalism mm-hmm. and this idea that she must try to change what she thinks is, is inevitable in her right. mind. And maybe it is an examination of powers that John hadn't even thought to, to test out that might be able to change what she feels is inevitable. Something mm-hmm. like that. That could yeah. be, that could be, um, I think, a fascinating swerve in what it means to be Doctor Manhattan. And, and exactly, and I think we're thinking kind of macro on the micro level. It's interesting to think about, you know, while they were bug zapped in, in episode nine, she's still dealing with a ton of institutional racism, right? Um, with people joining, like you know, these cells of Seventh Cavalry type stuff, right? In her own, in her own police force. Mm-hmm. You know, so she's deal still dealing with really real world issues. Um, are we seeing a career path? Maybe a ladder, little chief of police. Right. I I think if she were to, like, if the egg doesn't work out for mm-hmm. her, 
if she, I, and I I can totally see she the just second gets, season the first scene is her standing at the edge of the pool and just falling right into the yeah, water right yeah and it's comedic and a little bit tragic because you know the egg that she thought was something more isn't but this idea that like she could potentially um I love that I like become like the head of become the new chief of police and take over and try to seriously enact a degree of change mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. like strip away this idea of of what it means to wear the mask and maybe take on other people who are donning masks one way or the other and little red scare showdown yeah like because then it seems like in a way she's be- she's becoming a little bit of what senator keen the first was and that he didn't want masks and he was trying to lim- eliminate mask vigilanteism but she also has that other foot in the door the other world of where she is familiar with it, similar to Lori Blake. Mm-hmm. And like, I also want to end it because I think it's destructive for the individual themselves when they right. wear these masks. Right. Oh, I and think just the, kind of playing with like, uh, uh, what would she do in that situation? That would be brilliant. That would be absolutely brilliant. And especially with Lori Blake thinking about maybe we could get a little bit of owl action, you right. know, something like that. Anyway, th- those are kind of just thoughts on season two in general. But I do think that would be an interesting uh, take on her. Let me ask you this, just kind of in closing, when you think about this character, um, or just the actress, you know, in her portrayal of the character, what are your kind of, what, what are your takeaways? Like, what are your kind of closing thoughts? Like, if you think of something that defines her, who she is, whether it's a scene or it's just who, something personality-wise, what would you go? I, when I think of her, I think that she fully fits within both the the pantheon of incredible Watchmen superhero characters and just superhero characters. Mm-hmm. And I would love to see more people be exposed to this storyline and embrace what a cool figure she already is and and explore what more what other storylines could be out there even in, in the fan world. Yeah. With with how people want to like yeah, just kind of uh take their own route and and exploring what she could potentially be. Yeah. Uh what about you? You know she, again, I've been most impressed with characters in the show with their courage. Mm. You know, there is a great line or two in Yeats. I'm not somebody who knows a ton of Yeats. I can't quote more than like five or six poems of Yeats. Okay. And certainly none. But you got one in your back pocket, don't you? I got two lines in my back pocket. <laughs> I got one. All right. And I think it is relevant to the the age in which we live. Uh, and I don't even actually know the quote. But paraphrasing, this is from the second coming. Jesus is coming back. Revelations. Hell, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like like the devil and these like demons are slouching towards Jerusalem. It's the end days, right? I remember when Yates wrote Revelations in the Bible. Right, exactly. So, um, you know, he talks about the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. And you think about today's political climate and everything else, like the best of us, those who maybe should, you know, do work for others and take on causes. Right. And, you know, we, instead we were afraid of confrontation or we just try to work and then we're tired and we just want to watch Netflix and we're not going to donate to a cause. And we're not going to certainly not going to go protest or anything like that because the American protest model is just DOA. Right. And then you look at the worst of us and they're just full of passionate intensity. And you look at some of those clips of like. Trump MAGA rallies and it's just vim and vigor and just hatred and everything like that. She's somebody who she's the best of us and she had conviction, right? And she's not perfect, 
but she did live to protect others, live to take care of her family. And it's just, that's what I love about all these characters. You know, and I think I've said it in the podcast, like I can't believe that Wade is just running into that warehouse or mall or whatever with a gun. I would be, I would hold, I would like hold firm. You know, I would stay back, await reinforcements, but we just have all the characters like that are so courageous. And I think she stood for that more than any of them. She's just the first among equals, you know? She's the hero oh. we need, but not the one that we deserve. There you go. And with that, I think that's it. <laughs> I think that's it. I, this was a, a fun way to uh, discuss the show through the lens of of a particular character. And I definitely yeah. want to do this again with a, a few of the other characters. So cool. Um, I think listeners, let us know what you think about Angela. Do you think we're off on some of our, our breakdown? Do you think we're dead on in some of our analysis? No, they don't. Where do you think, uh, where do you think a season two could potentially go? And what would you guys like to see? And who should we do next? Who should we talk about next? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, any, and any questions that we should address during? I think just right now we're doing general themes, a couple questions. You know, I think it's fun to think about different actors that could have played the characters. Right. But if anybody has other questions or how we could always, we're always in need of structure. So. And uh, to you guys checking us out for potentially the first time, I would go ahead and say, hey, uh, thank you for listening to us. Please be sure to go ahead and subscribe. Subscribe to us here on YouTube. Subscribe to us on our podcast, wherever you're listening to that. You can help us out a lot by giving us that five-star rating and writing review on Apple Podcasts. That's like that's going to be the best platform where it actually does give a good boost for us. But if you're and not going to give the five-star yeah, right. Don't even click send. <laughs> you know? But but if you do, we do really appreciate uh, all of your support there. And another way you guys can help us out is over at patreon.com slash Watchmen. Make a per-month pledge. Give us a, a buck or two. And uh, we try and put up a little exclusive content here and there for you guys and keep you engaged. We ask um, our listening audience, or our patrons first, like, oh, what should we be doing next? Who should we be talking to? Or talking about rather in our yeah. character studies, and because um, we, we're just talking to each other, right? We appreciate we appreciate the feedback though and the support that you guys have given us thus far, and yeah, with that, I think it's time for us to go ahead and wrap up. Are you gonna do the weird thing where you, you... can follow us on social media, and I'm gonna do the weird thing where uh, Clay's got some closing thoughts. Clay, what do you got? I guess okay. Well, as you <laughs> drop the keyboard there, uh, no, I think uh, I would love to find out also what people think. Just about which show maybe we should do next. We're kind of thinking about books, comic books, shows, albums. I know he, I mean, Grant's a big fan of Dylan. We might do Les Miserables. Different, I don't know. What are we doing? Get me out of here. All right. Bye. <laughs>